everybody. Welcome. My name is Tamar Garb, and I'm the director here of the Institute of Advanced Studies. And really, um, very, very happy to welcome you all to this uh, panel, which uh, takes place in a whole, uh, in the context of a whole, thank you, series of events around the theme of lies, which is one of our themes for the IAS this year. And there, there are various panels and. Uh, celebrity lectures and individual lectures and workshops, etc., that will be going on throughout the rest of the year. So we hope you'll keep um, abreast of those and come and join us in an ongoing conversation. Um, but it's really interesting that we, we started to think about psychoanalysis and lies or lying right early on in the process of thinking um, about the theme and trying to think about what a lie was. Uh, many of us came up, of course, with the obvious idea that a lie is a conscious uh, held false statement intended to deceive others. So if we think about lies in those um, terms, we wonder what psychoanalysis then might have to say about uh, the process of lying. Is it possible to tell an unconscious lie? I suppose would be one of my main questions. I'm by no means um, a psychoanalyst or involved in any serious way with psychoanalysis, except as a kind of cultural dilettante. But this is the kind of question that immediately comes to mind uh, for me. Um, what is the relationship between knowledge and lying? Can we know ourselves? And what role does self-deception have in relation to thinking about lying? So um, if we're thinking about self-deception as something that might be unconscious, is that also a lie? Opening up the question then about lies in relation to subjectivity, but also in relation to broader political questions in terms of the landscape that we now occupy, seemed an uh, incredibly important and urgent um, uh, uh, set of questions to address. So this is very, very, very broadly um, some of the thinking that's gone behind tonight's panel. But we've got five scholars, each of whom work very differently with psychoanalysis. So hopefully in the, in the course of the evening, we might be able to expand a whole uh, repertoire of ways of thinking, really, about the relationship between psychoanalysis and lying, particularly in relation to the cultural and political moment that we now inhabit, in which post-truth seems to be uh, the new normal. So I'm going to very, very briefly introduce the five panelists. And then the way it's going to work is each of them has been asked to speak quite informally for about 10 minutes. I've also told them that they're quite, um, if they want to interject after somebody has spoken, they can do that and press them a little bit um, as well. So, so, you know, it might open up a little bit more informally as well. But in any case, their task is in about 10 minutes to say something provocative and interesting that opens up questions about the relationship between um, lying and psychoanalysis, um, uh, what we think about that relationship to constitute, really. And then we'll open up the discussion more fully between the panelists, and hopefully you will all participate as well and uh, press them further, ask questions, or indeed make interventions of your own. So these are the panelists. The first person to speak will be Lionel Bailly, who's second on my left. And um, Lionel is a psychoanalyst and a child and adolescent psychiatrist. He uh, teaches and works here at UCL. He's an honorary senior lecturer in psychoanalysis um, at the UCL Psychoanalytic Institute, or something Psychoanalysis like Unit. Psychoanalysis Unit, yes. Um, and also consultant psychiatrist, and he is tasked with teaching the Lacan units in the MSc in Theoretical Psychoanalytic Studies. 
After Lionel Mairead, who is fourth over there, will speak Mairead Hanran, who's Professor of French at UCL, and will think much more, I think, about textuality and the literary and fantasy in relation to questions around lying. Her research interests focus primarily on 20th and 21st century uh, French writing, um, with a particular emphasis on poetic fiction, and she's known for her work on writers like Jean Genet and Hélène Sixou. Uh, then the third speaker will be David Morgan on my immediate left, who's a consultant psychotherapist and psychoanalyst, and he runs a very intriguing set of seminars, which I found out about when I was doing my bit of due diligence before the panel, um, on the relationship between psychoanalysis and politics, which um, is called the political mind. And from some of the people who've attended the course, I understand that it um, thinks the relationship between progressive politics and psychoanalytic theory, addressing questions around racism, uh, terrorism, totalitarian thinking, the market economy, etc. <coughs> Fourth uh, will be Mignon Nixon at the far end. She's a professor of modern contemporary art at UCL, and her work focuses on um, the interactions of art with feminism, gender, and psychoanalysis, and particularly on questions of sexuality, peace, and war. Then we'll have David Tuckett, who is right next to Mignon over there on the left, who's professor and director of the Center for the Study of Decision-Making Uncertainty at UCL in the Faculty of Brain Sciences, uh, as well as a fellow of the Institute of Psychoanalysis um, in London. He also has a clinical uh, practice, as well as studying intriguing and interesting things like the psychoanalytic study of investment markets. Finally, Rai Hollenbo, who's in the centre, who uh, teaches in the Department of History of Art here at UCL and works on mon modern and contemporary art and literature. So it's quite a diverse panel, ranging from people who comment on um, the real world and politics and forms of fiction and representation, the intersection between all of these. So um, I look forward to hearing what they have to say. And uh, Lionel, over to you. You're happy, welcome to sit there if you would like to. And can I say to the people at the back, there are at least 10 seats up front, and the acoustics are not so great. So do please join us up front if you'd like to. Um, they're not reserved for anyone but you. I was thinking when you, you did the introduction that probably actually to fully answer your question, to try to answer your question, probably a couple of hours would be better than 10 minutes. But uh, to, to start with, I'm going to probably suggest that once you, you use the word lie, the, the, the first question as a clinician that comes to me is who is lying? Mm. And uh, obviously with that psychoanalysis, uh, we have a model that involves different levels and the the belief and use this word in the unconscious suggests that there is something that escapes so if i say i'm never going to touch a, a drop of alcohol ever again do i lie to my therapist for example do i mean it absolutely clearly or is there a part of me that says the truth, but another part that has another truth, maybe that uh, will be revealed you know, in a week or two or three? In other words, there might be, if we move from lie to truth, a, an objective truth and a subjective truth. And uh, clinicians, obviously, are constantly dealing with that dichotomy. Uh, and what is more true? the objective or the subjective certainly one of the key concepts in psychoanalysis is repetition and when you start to repeat again and again the same mistakes 
the same uh, errors, you start to think that maybe these subjective truth or the truth of the subject, the truth of the unconscious might be sometime, uh, let's say, more real than the objective truth, what you can see and measure, uh, which is sometimes a problem uh, precisely in research. Now, the is the individual aware that he or she is lying or not saying maybe or presenting an aspect of the truth that is not the whole truth? Uh, probably not, because in a way, one uh, of the things that uh, the Jacques Lacan suggests is that the the ego, what you see in, in some ways, the, the person in front of you, is actually a fiction. In other words, that the, the, the true self, to use other people's words, would be more in keeping with what's in the unconscious and what we see is an image carefully crafted <coughs> that starts at the time of the mirror stage with the recognition that we have an image and that we have to assume that image, to accept it uh, in a way, embody it and live it. So we are telling stories. If you see, observe or work with children or have children, you see that very clearly when at the age of uh, four they go to a birthday party dressed as Superman with a, uh, an extraordinary uh, costume and, and they think they are that. And, and it's very important to be that. Now, we move slightly forward, but not much. You replace the Superman uh, suit by uh, a suit and a tie, uh, and you are the consultant psychiatrist in the NHS. But it's still not very different. It's a fiction. Therefore, what is the truth and who is speaking remains constant question, certainly for the clinician. Now, once we look at uh, politics, the world, uh, society, we may think that we move away from this uh, very close observation of an individual, but I think that it probably would be healthy to remember that politics is made by politicians and that politicians are people. And that's where the problems start. Uh, if they are people, therefore, what do they do? Are they immune to their unconscious? Are they so well aware of it that they could tap in and know exactly what's what or not? I would argue probably that to become a successful politician, you have to be as neurotic as possible and as unaware of your unconscious as possible or else you're not going to be uh, let's say efficient enough, ruthless enough, or ambitious enough to get there. Uh, so, <laughs> so the problem, therefore, at this point, becomes the the, the question uh, of the politicians' politics, the, their decisions, their choices, their analysis. Are they scientific? Are they based on? Uh, logic and facts, mm. or are they all the time, in a way, infiltrated by uh, elements of their unconscious? And that's a very important question, and I would um, suggest that actually fake news 
uh, and post-truth, I mean, words we heard recently quite a lot, are probably very clear expression of the politician's subjective truth. In other words, that for some obscure reasons, at this moment in the history, uh, a place is made for what normally would have been kept inside or expressed, let's say, in dreams or slip of the tongues, or, but then suddenly you're allowed to, uh, let's say, uh, um, project your, your, your in, inner fantasies uh, on the social uh, sphere. Therefore, in some ways, these, um, these fake news are the exteriorization of fantasies which are elevated by the social position of the politician to the status of truth or policies or decision-making. But they are just that. And if you uh, want to think of uh, examples, you know, walls. Walls are concrete examples, uh, concrete illustration of splitting. You keep the bad and the good. Uh, on two sides and then you may do that in your head or, or think that parts of, of others are, are good or bad but then you build a wall in Berlin uh, on the Rio Grande in Jerusalem it never works everybody knows that these walls cannot keep uh, people apart but nonetheless they are there and they are there as a concrete as a, uh, a real illustration of something that is probably internal it is worrying, obviously, <coughs> that there is uh, uh, this uh, leakage uh, from uh, the unconscious to the political sphere. Probably it was always there, but people tried to <coughs> package it differently. I think they were aware that actually it was not something that should be seen or understood, so you had to hide it or to maybe socialise it. Why is it important? Well, there's many, I've mentioned walls, but there's probably a lot of other aspects of that. But if you want to think of uh, uh, maybe the second Gulf War, not the first one, but the second one, uh, why did it happen? And it could be argued, for example, that uh, maybe because a son wanted to be better than his dad. That where in the First World War, Bush Sr. stopped shy of uh, beating, of winning, uh, of pulverizing Saddam Hussein, the arch enemy, uh, stopped 50 miles of Beirut and waited because actually there were some good reason to do that, then maybe the son suddenly, for some reason, wants to do better. Now, is it a good reason to go to war? Frankly, from my point of view, no. Certainly from the point of view of the head uh, of the United States at the time, yes. Now, was he aware of that? Probably not. So, in other words, this was his subjective truth, but uh, it's us uh, people who were left with the remnant of the objective truth. Okay, good evening. My brief was to speak 
um, to use my 10 minutes to give a specifically literary perspective on the relationship between lying and psychoanalysis. And provocative and interesting were not, unfortunately, mentioned. So I'm afraid I'm going to be more sch schematic. I hope, I, what I'm hoping to do is just to approach this from two different angles. Um, to raise the question of what psychoanalysis can tell us about the very particular kind of lying, the very particular kind of untruth that is fiction, <coughs> and then of what that untruth maybe can tell us about psychoanalysis. So as I say, this is going to be really very schematic, but I'm hoping it will at least raise issues that we can, we can discuss. So I've taken as my point of departure a quotation from an author that I have indeed worked an awful lot on, Jean Genet, um, who famously declared in his first novel that il faut mentir pour être vrai, right? you have to lie to tell the truth. And let me specify that even within the novel, this is presented as a quotation, right? I've given you the quotation marks, apparently from Jean Cocteau, though so far I've failed to actually identify the source. And I think the fact that it's presented as a quotation offers it as a general insight into the nature of art and not just a particular idiosyncrasy on the part of Genet. So if we assume that the narrator isn't lying here, right, that he truly believes that you have to lie to tell the truth, how might we interpret that? Does it involve a blurring of the distinction between lies and truth? And let me immediately say that I don't think it does. Or is it rather to suggest that lying has a particular role the complexities we are faced with at the moment, with climate change and the effects of our colonial and post-colonial past that are now coming back to haunt us, are too painful for us to embrace and think about. Poverty in the Rust Belt in America is too painful to think about. We need an answer for these complexities that are too difficult to think about, even if it's a lie. Because a lie, like the man having the stake in the matrix, provides some relief from painful reality. For instance, I know a lot about climate change, but I still drive a car. Up until recently, a year and a half ago, a diesel car, I have to say, I'm embarrassed to say. I could feel guilt, or I could put some faith in climate change disavowal, which I don't. I know it's not true, but like the man with the stake, who cares? No, reality's too unbearable. It'll be all right, won't it? Somebody will invent some way of clearing up the atmosphere. So post-truth helps because it provides a fantasy that helps us avoid reality. Because in some ways, I think the reality all of us live with in this room, because of the benefits of where we were born, are often too painful and too uncomfortable to face. And so we quite like politicians. I think politicians have an enormously difficult job. And the people I've met actually have some integrity, actually. But they have to find some way of staying in power and some way of providing truth for people that's palatable. Otherwise, they won't survive. So we live in an era in which politics and the supposed experts of serving perhaps don't feel obliged to face uncomfortable, unbearable facts. So arguments cannot be dropped, no matter how overwhelming the evidence that it's wrong. Freud was a sort of king of uncomfortable facts in some ways. In fact, this is where he entered the history in the beginning of psychoanalysis. Freud subsumed uncomfortable under the concept of unpleasure a general term for pain. We don't like pain. It hurts. And this is true for every animal, but none is remotely as clever as we human beings at avoiding it. They're fantastic at it. Yeah. Post-truth is a way of avoiding pain. 
And there are people providing us, like people providing drugs, provide us with a fix to avoid that pain, to obviate that pain. And Freud discovered how he managed our escape because we become equipped with a power that overrides whatever our five senses tell us. It's called fantasy. We all know Freud's unpleasure principle, pleasure principle, and if growth and development proceeds normally, fantasy gives way to the reality principle. But this leads us to a deeper question when it comes to the thrust that hurls an entire political party into the domain of denial. What enables or what makes politicians disregard facts and not register them? I'm not talking about political corruption and sociopathy in high places, which through these whistleblowers I've come to become very familiar with, but a genuine point of view at odds with reality, like climate change. It's clearly true that it's happening, but it's too unbearable. So finding some theory or some idea or some scientists, usually working for the people who have a sort of vested interest in denying climate change, provides some distraction, I think, from the painful reality that we're facing something utterly unbearable and utterly catastrophic, and it's terrifying for all of us. Freud made a crucial discovery that fantasy comes equipped with remarkable power. It can produce hallucination, which commandeers our sense apparatus. Fantasy can storm our senses of communication, and this is what accounts for the far-reaching consequences of post-truth politics. It caters for our fantasy life that provides us with a distraction from unbearable truths in our reality that are facing us at the moment, in this room, right at this moment. So hallucination is not merely a thought or an idea. Hallucination takes over the sensory apparatus. It reverses its function. So rather than the five senses passively registering the objective world, hallucination turns them into actively creating one so that man becomes a creator of worlds, an omnipotent defense, I might call it, which acts as a tremendous detraction from painful uh, or post-truth reality, uh, re sorry, truthful realities. And these fantasies and these purveyors of these fantasies pander to this wish for distraction. Now, what, what is so terrifying in our world at the moment that we need, we need this distraction? Well, I, I'll give you a, an example, which I call the return of the oppressed, which is sort of a play on words, Freud's return of the repressed. We here can talk like this because we are the beneficiaries of the lottery of life. And as winners of the Hunger Games, we regularly get letters from the oppressed about the injustices of this lottery. <clears throat> I have used this idea of the lottery from Cecil Rhodes, not because he's a friend of mine, but because we have to be aware that we are the beneficiaries of this lucky lottery. What I want to talk about is these realities of these communications of the oppressed are reminders that some of us may feel innocent as we did not steal from others, but our forebears did. Of course, the West wants to keep the upper hand, not face the guilt. So we look for simplistic issues to evade the truth. Keep the other out. Restrict ourselves and move backward on our borders. Brexit. Build walls. Simplistic answers to something very complex. And that is the birth of the other in our midst. And, we, and to seek to understand attack on this other is a way of actually, again, avoiding reality. It's them, the migrants are bad, push them out. It will be argued that certain historical cultural factors caused by me cause an inhibition of our capacity to think through the significance to us of refugees and immigrants. Central here 
this is the, why truth is so unbearable, is the awareness of our own implication in the horrors they are fleeing. That is our unconscious guilt for the terrible depredations of our colonial imperialist past and our wish to main, maintain power. So truth is unbearable because something's coming home in our backyard, be it climate change as a result of our economic policies or migrants from countries which we might have exploited who now want to come and live here because we have a better standard of living. It's unbearable to us. So politicians who want to build a wall or provide distractions from this painful reality are very attractive, okay? Nothing um, provides distraction like running up a flag and becoming nationalistic. Keep America great, you know? Take Britain back from Europe. It does provide a distraction from the much bigger, bigger, um, profound uh, disturbances that we're having to face. The biggest one being climate change, where our whole home is under threat, okay? So post-truth, I think, does provide a way of altering reality. Okay? And that's why Trump got into power. I think he offered the hopeless, and it's hopeless people, hope. People who felt hopeless were offered hope. It was a complete lie. I think he's been proven to be a complete liar. But I think his lies provided hope in situations that felt utterly hopeless. Okay? So post-truth provides hope, I think, in hopeless situations where the problems are so complex that I think a simplistic, untruthful fantasy provides a distraction from something quite unbearable. Okay? And I've witnessed this because um, having seen these whistleblowers who come from the judiciary, come from politics, the National Health Service, uh, vehicle manufacturers who are exposing enormous amounts of corruption and fraud in these companies and, and these institutions, after a while, I didn't want to hear their stories. They were unbearable. Uh, because they were, they were exposing me to an aspect of my society I didn't want to know about. Okay? And I think that's what post-truth provides me with, a distraction from the things I do not want to know about. Okay? So I think post-truth has an enormous value. It provides us all with a fantasy, a lie, that we can help us distract us from things we do not want to know about. You know? I can enjoy a bottle of Pomerol tonight, uh, or uh, something cheaper, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, whilst people may be drowning in the Mediterranean. I managed that reality by splitting and not knowing about it, probably. I hope not too much. You know. And we all do it. So it's not just horrible politicians who do it. Politicians want provide us with the sort of... We, we get the politicians we deserve to some extent. And I think they're struggling to, with extremely complex problems and difficulties that perhaps may not have any answer. We might be facing the rise and fall of the Western Empire, as Gibbons wrote about in the Roman Empire books. You know? We might be facing something really difficult, a loss of power and prestige that we've never had to experience before in the West. And so post-truth provides a way of shoring that up and keeping our omnipotence intact. That's my piece. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to talk about extreme lying. With amplification, I need to lie down. We all do, really. The age of post-truth is exhausting in its incessant demands to stand up for the truth. So for the next few minutes, please feel free to let go, slouch, doze if you like. You need the rest. While I speculate briefly on the double meaning of this little verb to lie, which signifies both a posture and an imposture, and which in both those senses implies a certain indifference 
or even hostility to the claims of reality. For this is what lying often signifies, not only a desire to ignore or cover up the truth, but a denial of reality itself. If you think things are bad now, and they are, it is worth remembering that post-truth as a political condition is not novel. I have not yet seen the new movie, The Post, it's about a whistleblower, but I too feel compelled to return to that moment of extreme lying during the American war in Vietnam to make some sense of our current predicament. Writing after the publication of the Pentagon Papers, which revealed the scope of the lying and deception practiced on the public over successive administrations, Hannah Arendt remarked, the famous credibility gap has opened into an abyss. The credibility gap, which shared some common features with our era of fake news, was underpinned by government policies. One of these was called maximum candor. This was the name given to the misinformation strategy adopted by the Johnson administration concerning the conduct of the American war in Vietnam. By instituting an extensive bureaucracy for delivering its own version of the war's events, or what might today be called alternative war facts, including those disseminated at daily press briefings in Saigon, which reporters dubbed the five o'clock follies, the US government created a pretense of transparency as a cover for systemic deception. As so often with propaganda, the name Maximum Candor ostentatiously belies the cult of secrecy, not my phrase, that actually prevailed. I don't know what nicknames are used for press briefings under the current US administration. I'm sure they're very good. But I would like to stay for a moment with the idea of folly and to offer you a couple of examples of artists who responded to the extreme lying of their era by attempting to expose, as one artist, Yayoi Kusama, expressed it, the naked truth. So just two quick examples. In the run-up to the November 1968 presidential election, Kusama conducted a series of nude protest events around New York City. She called them anatomic explosions. Um, in the anatomic explosion on Wall Street in July 1968, she directed these four dancers to strip and frolic in front of the stock exchange. And then on the plinth of the George Washington statue opposite. The money made with this stock is enabling the war to continue, her, her accompanying press release proclaimed. In November, on the eve of the election, she staged a protest on the steps of the New York City Board of Elections on Varick Street in which her performers appeared wearing only oversized paper cutouts of the candidates, who were Hubert Humphrey, George Wallace, and the winner, Richard Nixon. Kusama urged the candidates to reveal the bare facts about themselves. Then, on a chilly day a week later, following Nixon's election on the strength of his so-called secret plan for peace, which was never revealed, Kusama and her entourage distributed copies of an open letter to the president-elect. Improbably enough, the artist framed it as a love letter. Let's forget ourselves, dearest Richard, she implored, and become one with the absolute altogether in the altogether. 
As we soar through the heavens, we'll paint each other with polka dots, lose our egos in timeless eternity, and finally discover the naked truth. You can't eradicate violence with violence. There is much to parse in this letter, much about the relationship between pleasure and pain, I think, but I want to focus on one phrase, the naked truth. Dismissed as a stunt by most of the art press, Kusama's letter did attract the attention of leading newspapers, perhaps surprisingly, including the New York Times. Um, I'll just show you a headline, but it's not the New York Times, which reported, four persons stripped off their clothes yesterday and handed out copies of an open letter to President-elect Nixon that said, anatomic explosions are better than atomic explosions. <laughs> There was a certain raw truth to the observation, which turned out to be not only historically accurate, but also prescient. For Nixon, of course, would go on to devise the so-called madman theory of nuclear war, a doctrine that has enjoyed a renaissance of late. I call, I'll just remind you of the theory. I call it the madman theory. Nixon is said to have told his aide, Bob Haldeman, of Watergate infamy. I want the North Vietnamese to believe I've reached the point where I might do anything to stop the war. We'll just slip the word to them that for God's sakes, you know, Nixon is obsessed about communism. We can't restrain him when he's angry and he has his hand on the nuclear button. In other words, the idea was to lie to the North Vietnamese about the president's willingness to resort to nuclear weapons, which would be a credible lie because he was not only a liar, but widely suspected of being unstable. Hmm. Yeah. Kusama was also thought to be crazy. Kuki Kusama, they called her, and a liar, an artist accused of applying, as um, one art historian has written, a thin veneer of progressive political rhetoric to disguise a naked ambition and desire for press attention. But seen from another point of view, the war survivor Kusama's bare facts are along the lines of what the psychoanalyst Hannah Siegel called the psychic facts of nuclear politics. For Siegel, a Kleinian, the failure to mourn the effects of our own destructiveness is a defining feature of modern American politics. In her writings on nuclear mentality culture, she observes that all groups resist assuming collective responsibility for war, but the history of the United States from Hiroshima to the Cold War, to Vietnam, to the first Gulf War, to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is one of manic disavowal. The psychic legacy of this denial of guilt is in psychoanalytic parlance a pathological mourning. It is not only that we Americans do not face up to the death and destruction we have caused, but also that our energies are consumed in denying their significance by manically declaring our own omnipotence. Hmm. From this point of view, Kusama is simply a psychic realist. Okay, so now my second and much briefer example. In the spring of 1969, at the height of the American War in Vietnam, the avant-garde artist Yoko Ono and her partner John Lennon celebrated their honeymoon by inviting the world's press into their bedroom. Anticipating a titillating scene, a throng of reporters and photographers, you see some of them there, arrived to find the couple lying propped up in bed side by side, offering to talk about peace for a week. Later that spring, banned from visiting the United States, hmm, they performed the event for a second time in Montreal. 
as counter-programming to television's daily diet of war in news broadcasts with their tight formats and reliance on official maximum candor accounts of the war, the bed-in was an unscripted event in which journalists were invited to ask anything. No secrets, you know, no time limit. Come in as long as you liked. You've got everything you need to know about John and Yoko or what we stand for or what we are, Lenin offered. The contrast between this open invitation to the press to come in as long as you liked, you've got everything you need to know, and the systematic withholding and deception practiced by government and military authorities could not have been more pointed or laid back. By lying down and talking about anything, Ono and Lenin put their bodies on the line in a new way a way that might loosely be described as incorporating some of the insights of psychoanalysis. The bed-in was a media event beamed around the world, but it was also an event in Ono's specific sense of the term. Event, the artist once explained, is not a get-togetherness, but a dealing with oneself. To stay in bed in response to war was to deal with oneself one's own violence, one's own fantasies, one's own self-deceptions as an essential part or step toward the work of responding to war. Thank you. So I don't really know what I think on this subject, but I will try to uh, do my brief. And I think what I think is that from my perspective as a psychoanalyst, uh, I don't think the concept of lying is very useful. And I will try to make that case at least to have some discussion. Why isn't it useful? Because it's fundamentally normative and fun fundamentally therefore moral judgmental. Nothing wrong with either of those things in context. But I agree with my colleague here, big problem if it's universalistic. So I think the question then is, lying in what context? Well, in a court of law, telling things that are not true is a problem, clearly. In politics, and the kind of thing we've just been hearing about, I think what we're hearing is about strategic behavior. We may like it, we may not like it, but I think from the beginning of time, that's what it is, strategic behavior. And where you stand on it very much depends on whether you think the strategy is a good or bad strategy. Another situation is fiction. I don't think it's terribly useful to think of fiction as a lie, because actually I think fiction is an attempt, and this is where it does connect with psychoanalysis, to evoke a set of considerations uh, which are profoundly to do with experience from the, from the artist, and this I think would be generally true of artists. 
I think it's ridiculous to think of art as a lie. Although, of course, if you know anything about painting, for example, you know there are plenty of tricks in it. But so what? The tricks are there to make points. And then I was also thinking just now of remembering uh, that it's, I think, totally unfashionable now. But there used to be an absolute conviction in hospitals that you do not tell patients who have cancer that they're dying. I once took part in a debate with Lord Moran, who I suppose you probably don't know who I'm talking about, but he was president of the Royal College of Physicians and Churchill's doctor. And this was uh, at the Royal Free Hospital a long time ago. And he made the case, and the case I think can be made, that um, it is absolutely unacceptable to tell truth to patients necessarily. With one exception, <laughs> you do need to tell the Prime Minister the truth. I mean, it's hilarious, this discussion, but anyway. <laughs> uh, my point is that you can debate the issue. There is a big debate, I think, and that to say not to tell is, uh, I think it's a problem. So I don't think we're helped by the concept of lying in these situations. So now to come back to psychoanalysis, what is it? So for me, psychoanalysis is the study of subjective experience. And in this sense, in the sense that it attempts to be a reasonably rigorous study of subjective experience, along with things like literature and art criticism, which are a bit different, uh, it is kind of unique. And what it attempts to do is to look at try to, I mean, if you're an analyst now, uh, I mean, the point about psychoanalysis is I think it's quite different whether you're talking about it from the perspective of being in the consulting room or whether you're talking about it more theoretically. And I think both can be useful, right? But from the point of view of being in the consulting room, uh, as I see it, the patient uh, is simply by definition, we ask them to associate, they do associate. And what are they doing? They are in choosing words, images, situations to describe experience that they are having, some of which they know and some of which they don't know. There's no way the concept of lying is useful in that situation. Experience is what we all have to manage. And David's been talking about unbearable experience, and this is certainly a very important part of experience sometimes. <coughs> but we all manage experience, that's what we do. And we all construct reality based on our starting subjective positions. The interesting thing is how we respond, if you like, to negative information. Uh, I mean, in psychology, there's recently been a book published, I think of some interest, in which there are numerous experiments to say that what we all suffer from is what they call my side bias. That we're all terrible at evaluating our own arguments, etc. And these people also argue that the whole history of reasoning in you know, which you reason all on your own and so on, 
is, is completely the wrong way to think about all this. That actually evolution has set us up rather effectively as people who have my side bias, but reasoning is for giving reasons in a social context with a view to protecting one's reputation. Now, if you're a psychoanalyst, of course, you'd think that reputation is something you have in your head. So I imagine how you're listening to me, well, that is how you're listening to me, is another story, right? But I'm trying to protect my reputation, and actually, <clears throat> human beings are extremely good at taking information back from people that it tells them that they've, they've got it wrong, and I won't go into it now, but despite what we might actually think from the numerous examples of groupthink and other things, actually there's lots of evidence that human beings have got where we have done by being extremely good in groups at doing the right thing, mostly. So coming back to uh, psychoanalysis and experience, we construct experience. And the point about the unconscious here is that unconscious beliefs, that is, unconscious meanings we attribute to the experience we're having, means that those experiences are facts. As far as we're concerned, they're facts. The point of psychoanalysis is to gradually introduce, via observing what goes on, that things that have been taken as facts are, in fact, beliefs. Now, it doesn't mean they're wrong, right? You believe. It's, but once something is a belief, of course, you can consider whether that belief fits the situation you're trying to fit it to or not. And much of the time, the problem is that actually we treat facts, you know, I think you're against me. I think you're, you know, all this kind of stuff that goes on in interpersonal relationships. On the whole, often people treat things as facts and they're quite surprised to realise they're actually their beliefs. And it's quite important for lying because I don't think it really helps at all in this situation to conceive the situation in any way as a conscious lie. So if we come to Donald Trump, who you're obviously all somewhat interested in, does he lie? Well, I, of course, I've never had the chance to talk to him, but I'm not sure it would be a useful contact, uh, uh, way of thinking if I did. I really don't. I think he's managing his experience in a particular way. He's also very strategic. Uh, and... Uh, I don't think the concept of lie is really useful in this kind of situation. <coughs> David has mentioned Bion, and Bion uh, suggested that there is a fundamental human drive for knowledge, which would fit with this psychology stuff, actually, about, about how people are interested in their my-side biases is criticised. A fundamental drive for knowledge, but under situations of anxiety, that gets short-circuited. So instead of being, because curiosity requires a state of acknowledging one doesn't know. And this can be a very anxiety-provoking situation, particularly in, depending on 
the way things have gone for you in your life and so on, admitting not knowing in a situation can be extremely frightening. I mean, are you my enemies or my friends? That's a pretty complex, worrying thing if I have that sort of thing. So he also introduced the idea of minus K, K and minus K. Uh, a minus K is a situation where, the, where what we do is try to solve the situation rather than to find out about it. So this brings me back to the concept of lying because I think the concept of lie in many situations which we've been discussing where it might be used is a quick fix that doesn't do much. What it may mainly do is make us, when we accuse someone else of lying, feel better. When I started thinking about what to say for the next 10 minutes or so, I remembered the first dream I had at the beginning of an analysis. I was at a conference a bit like this one, except that there were exactly one million people present. <laughs> and the rules were that we were not allowed to sleep and that we had to wear name tapes. In the conference, there was a large poster showing someone, perhaps me, sleeping without a name tape with a message at the top prohibiting sleep. It looked like an anti-immigration poster, or perhaps someone lying on the couch. In the dream, I found a space behind the poster where I lay down and, as in a kind of mise en abime, where pictures are nestled within one another, fell asleep without my label on. I was soon woken up by an aggressive policeman who shook me by the shoulders, told me that I was not allowed to sleep, and put a label on my chest, which did not read Rai Holmbo, which is my name, but... Lizette Cerebus, a name that echoed in my mind as my conscious self woke up and, as it were, emerged from the dream. Lizette Cerebus, Lizette Cerebus. Um, Cerebus sounds like Cerberus, the many-headed dog who guards the gates of the underworld to prevent the dead from leaving. Cerberus also has a snake's tail and the claws of a lion, which makes it a monster, something artificial and outside of nature, a bit like a collage or assemblage of disparate elements stitched together. Lisette Cerebus also sounds in French like the injunction Lisez ce rebus, or read this rebus, which is of course the form that for Freud dreams take, rebuses or picture puzzles. It also reminded me of that other punning name that mixes up genders, Eros c'est la vie, Marcel Duchamp's famous alter ego in drag, a name that sounds like Eros c'est la vie or Eros is life. And it's worth noting here how the surplus letter R or R or R migrates in Duchamp's work. He takes it from the first word of the first act of Alfred Jarry's Ubourois, Mère de Re, a kind of lexical monstrosity that sounds a bit like merde or shit, and places it also at the beginning of R. Mutt, the signature on Fountain, as well as in his, as in R, Duchamp's pun on R or Art, where R means a deposit of money. So a work like Objet d'Art operates across different discursive fields, the libidinal, the aesthetic, the economic, the psychic, registers that meet in a play on words, 
a game in which homonyms are treated as if they were synonyms. The letter R is also found at the beginning of both parts of the name Raymond Roussel, a still underappreciated figure in French literature who the surrealist Louis Aragon called the Proust of Dreams, and who was an important point of reference for Duchamp because of his capacity for wordplay and for visual puns. In one of his poems, Nouvelle Impression d'Afrique, a poem whose title incidentally sounds like Nouvelle Impression Afrique, or New Impressions of Money, the bald patch on the top of a jaundiced monk's head becomes a fried egg. Duchamp was also an, an admirer of Roussel's taste for disguise. Here is Roussel dressed up as a minor outside a theatrical and flimsy entrance to the underworld. Though it's difficult to know what to make of these kinds of coincidences, it is worth mentioning here, I think, that when Roussel died of an overdose of barbiturates in 1933, his death certificate read Armand Roussel, not Raymond Roussel, Armand or Art Lies. For someone who spent so much of his life creating elaborate puns, the mistake made by the policeman who first arrived at the scene is almost too good to be true. Art has never been in truth, and whatever the object under scrutiny, the idea that it comes after truth simply prompts the question, if the object is fallen, then where was it standing? And I think the answer would always be not on firm ground. The kind of truth a dream or objet d'art expresses is contingent, provisional, and situational, a truth with a very small t, always on the brink of imploding, like meaning does in a pun. And I think it would be inadequate to say that the dream, let alone the objet d'art, is reducible to a biographical truth, since it enjoys a certain autonomy, acting as a kind of third object, one that is operational. In the case of the dream with which I began, the interpretation of the dream was an instance of the dream's main theme. The dream was involuted, an example of its own interpretation. Lisette Cerebus, Lisette Cerebus, read this rebus. And given the associations the dream provoked, it too might be said to combine the registers of the aesthetic, the psychic, the libidinal, and the economic, and might then be seen not only as a sublimation, but as a symptomatic expression of the same impersonal processes that coalesce in Duchamp's work, or indeed in Roussel's. Freud seems to have been aware of this in his use of analogy derived from the language of political economy to describe unconscious processes. In his dream book, for example, in his dream book, for example, he claims that though the dream is made out of scraps of everyday life, the day's residue, a dream needs a motivating force that comes from the unconscious. In Freud's account, the unconscious behaves like a capitalist, while the day's residue is what he calls memorably the dream entrepreneur. Though Freud goes on to note that the capitalist is sometimes the dream entrepreneur and vice versa. The point is not to say that dream work and economic processes are the same factually, but by analogy, by the logic of what might be termed the as if. They share a logic of operation and of exchange. Like the objet d'art, the dream is non-discursive and riddle-laden, while the mechanics of the dream work suggest the presence of processes impersonal in character. What becomes unclear is who or what organizes the work in dreams, and what kind of unconscious is at stake, a personal unconscious perhaps, but also an aesthetic unconscious, or a capitalist unconscious, 
to use the titles of two recently published books. This raises interesting questions, I think, about what kind of truth is specific to psychoanalysis impl implicated as it is in the world, and about the unconscious transactions that take place in the analytic situation, where the analyst and the analysand might interpret a dream or a set of associations. What kind of unconscious truth does the dream disguise? What does the dream work give the lie to? And I think these questions are not answered, but only complicated by this idea of what we now call post-truth, tied up as it is with a privileging of emotional truth. The OED, or the Oxford English Dictionary, defines the term as the circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And I felt that it was at least worth raising the issue that were we to swap the term public for private, and I think that given the analogies I've described or tried to describe and the porous relationship between the inside and the outside, we might, then we would have a working definition of what psychoanalysis might look like. And so hopefully another productive tension to think about. ideas and um, incredibly suggestive. I'm not quite sure um, where to take it in terms of trying to find a, a thread. Um, let me open it up. I mean, I think that in some ways, three of you talked about art and representation, and um, three of you talked really about politics and the, and, and, and the world, you know, the world of political um, agency and enactment, the subject in crisis in relation to political action. And I wonder, in listening to one another, whether you, any of you would like to say a little bit more about how both those realms have something to say to one another. I mean, all of you, of course, who talked about art and representation, inflected it with questions of power and politics. There was, it wasn't some sort of, you know, a space of private withdrawal in any way at all. It's always inflected with that. But I wonder, for those of you who were thinking about the political, in the ways in which you were um, uh, were addressing it, whether you think that the space of art and representation provides a vocabulary to complicate or to extend the way in which you're using the concepts of truth, fiction, lies, etc., in relation to the political. Uh, if any of you want to sort of try to bridge those a little bit more, having heard what each other has to say. I thought there was one interesting thing about the more political... You need... The, you need... Uh, the, the, you've got one... Yeah, okay. Um, I thought that one of the interesting things about the, as it were, more overtly political papers um, was the idea that somehow lying was an expression of hope. And when I was thinking about the different ways of, um, you know, or saying something today, one of the papers that I thought of was Winnicott's paper on the antisocial tendency, yeah. where he talks about the way in which an adolescent might steal not for the object that he or she finds, but in order to rediscover the capacity to find. So in a way, the object is interchangeable. And he mentions in the same sort of breath, but without developing the question of the lie, um, that the lie functions in the same way. It's an expression of hope. And I thought that was just quite a nice sort of link between them all. You know, But in a way, there's, it wouldn't be to kind of redeem the lie or to not sort of critique it. But, but in a certain sense, it, it humanizes it in a way that maybe gets rid of the polarity, which I think is maybe productive in some ways. David, did you want to come in and sort of say anything about that? Well, I think the person telling the lies is, is searching for a mind that can actually distinguish between 
ethics, they're talking about not being a moral judge, but somebody who has an, an open mind that can begin to explore why the person is actually using that particular way of constructing his reality. It may be the first mind they've ever met who can actually begin to bear to unpick what's different between the, the truth and the non-truth. You know? Not that we know to begin with. I was thinking about your analyst of your first dream, it must have been slightly overwhelming actually. <laughs> <laughs> it felt too good to be true. With a channel in my What was very interesting there was of course that none of you in talking about, you know, about, about the, the truth of fiction were using art in any reparative or redemptive no, way. You weren't, and, and, and that was wonderful that, that the space of art wasn't a space in which any of this is made better. And yet it was a space in which this is reflected upon in a way that is uh, interestingly um, you know, self-critical and nuanced. And so without wanting art to be the space of redemption, it does potentially become the space of critical reflection. And that to me was a very interesting way. It keeps the pain, the unbearable pain, visible because it articulates it, it writes it, it finds a form for it, but it doesn't make it better. It symbolizes it, but it doesn't make it better. And I thought that that was very interesting in, in terms of listening to all of you. And it bears it too, doesn't it? I mean, I think art is a way to bear the unbearable. It's, it, so I was fascinated with your idea that, you know, it's the, that in a way maybe it's a strength, it's, it's a capacity to bear the unbearable, a different kind of um, ability to bear it. That, whereas in a way what you were saying about the hope is that the false truth can't bear it. Sure, I can't. In any, it's it's it's, it's a rejection it. of it. I was, I was looking at John and Yoko in bed, interesting against the Vietnamese War, and I was thinking, are they symbolising something in a way that's very powerful, or was it a bit trite? Yeah. So it can be a defence as well. Oh, we're doing something terribly important to symbolise something extraordinarily painful. But it's also can be an intellectual defence. And I find some of the bits of the papers on art and creativity that sort of thing a little bit intellectual, you know. And, 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 and it could be a way of moving away from the rawness of what I was talking about and constructing a nice intellectual idea, which you know we can all feel good about here. That's what we do. That's what we do, exactly. I was thinking that, exactly. You can't yeah. do that without consulting with me. The patient would know, which is a sort of theory. The theories are more important to you than me. You know? mm. that, that happens sometimes, I think, with intellectual ideas. So that's, that's my particular thing. Mm. Do you want to say anything about Beth Mignon, Don Yoko? Well, I think what's interesting to me is really uh, the reason I brought up those examples is as instances of um, artists posing the question, what does art have to offer to this situation, this situation yeah. of unbearable reality, something that is overwhelming. And so... Um, in the case of Kusama, it's the the possibility of nuclear war. So, what would um, art have to offer to some kind of um, thinking about that? What could it elicit in terms of a um, a group's participation in reflection on that um, that doesn't um, straightforwardly deny the reality of it? And in the case of Ono and Lenin, you know, what would be um, a public space um, other than the, the space of, of confrontation of the street, for example, in which to um, think, have some sort of a dialogue, obviously contrived in many ways, as, as you're suggesting, but um, model, create a, some sort of a, a model for a space of 
thinking, yeah. um, which involves sexuality, involves the body, involves the couple, and, and thereby involves the individual, but the individual in that instance not alone. So I think both are also asking questions about um, the, the couple in the case of Ono and Lennon and the group in the case of Kusama, um, that in that moment really need to be asked um, because there is also um, a violence in the sexual politics of that time on the left um, and the, they're partly responding to that. So, I mean, they want to, in the case of Ono and Lennon, they want to do this in the most public way possible, which will involve a certain triteness yeah. and that's inevitable but it is bringing some um, avant-garde strategies to that um, and I would say the same with Kusama she wants to be as public as possible to disseminate as what to make the papers yeah. so there is an, a, an interest there yeah. in really thinking about what art might be able to do to involve insinuate itself into the political into the most public spaces that we have yeah. Um, Lionel and David, is there anything you want to add before we open it up? Well, I think I do. I mean, it was very helpful when you defined post-truth. <laughs> so, if I understood it, post-truth is where instead of people paying attention to objective facts, they start paying attention to subjective emotions and feelings. So, I think. So I think part of the problem here is the way we think about and use science. Because I left it out of my talk, but I had to drop a note down to raise that. And, and, and sort of, what is science? Because science is certainly not objective truth. What it is, or should be, is in any particular case that what we think of a scientific finding is something which is the best way we can come up with of understanding a given set of phenomena compared to any other ways we've been able to think of. That's what it is. Now it's always open to the fact we haven't actually thought of the right other ways to test it against. And that is why scientific theories change, because whether it's because people have different ways of doing the investigations or different ways of seeing things that previously were not available to them, they recontextualize the, the previous finding. So this has nothing to do with objectivity. And the, the claim, it, for example, the big problem about climate science is the advocacy about it so so there is no question from the physics of gases that we have a problem there's no question about that but there's massive questions about climate models and climate predictions and whether it's this number of degrees or that number of degrees most of those models are not worth the paper they're written on according to, I'm part of a network which looks into this, I'm not quoting my own opinion, but the opinion of other, other physicists. And as a result, because these models are put forward as if you can tell somebody how many degrees it will or won't be in 20 whatever, it, it, there's a certain fake 
truth or whatever you want to call it in that too actually things could be better or worse depending on numerous possible interactions so the and and what will happen is that if just before I came here actually was I had a meeting about how evidence is used in Parliament for two hours and one of the main issues there is that the one thing apparently you absolutely can't do is say something which soon or soon becomes seen to be untrue then your reputation is totally damaged that is if you're a university expert or someone came to talk about it and, and this is because people do have quite a good sense of whether they are being told a lot of stories or not. If you go back to Brexit, the arguments put in favour of Brexit were so weak and pathetic and nonsense in the case of your mortgage will go up you know, in the next week if, if you vote for Brexit, that people clearly withdrew from the expert opinion and, and based it on something completely different. Now, is this post-truth? I think really it, it's, it's something quite different that if we want to do something about it, we have to understand much better the way in which beliefs are formed and the fact that emotion is part of beliefs in every case. Okay, let's, let's open it up. Um, questions and comments. Um, Albert will come around with the microphone, so please, I think the person in the front here, please do speak into the mic. Yeah, just to throw sort of the line of the idea, if you look at the concept of truth also from the concept of the political ecology, which has many points to respect. For example, truth as political truth, as a, again, specific sort of sensible aesthetic arrangement to the facts, because again, the truth in that sense is a context, and the context is changing in that sense. In that sense. Is it, for example, valid to that extent to look at life as a way to offer the alternative? Sensible arrangement of the facts in that sense. Remember, Helen Conway with her alternative facts, for example, in that sense. She, she probably should have said alternative truth rather than alternative facts in that sense. But can we actually speak about unitary, even term truth, seriously from that perspective? Even uh, from the perspective of St. Critics, for example, criticism and analysis, we cannot actually look at it seriously in a retrospective point in time. But again, the facts are something that you cannot contradict, but maybe. Uh, the question about how this sensible organization of the facts, or how this, this sort of matrix of organization of the facts is getting established and is getting legitimized is more interesting question to address. Okay, thank you. We'll, we'll take a few comments and questions perhaps and then um, think about them together. So my pen has run out, so somebody else has got to jot them down. Or do, do, do. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks. You're very good at doing that. <laughs> I'll just write the facts. And... Yeah. Pleasure. Yeah. 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 Yeah
Which is <laughs> important at the moment. Um, I think what David said was this politics. Um, people more to fill it. Uh, Corbyn. And, you know, there's this idea of uh, almost truth to power. But we do have this other dialogue come through, especially at the moment. Um, I saw something like Green Party for going on for years. Yeah. But these dialogues do feel like they're coming through slowly. Yeah. Um, to me, it kind of fits in the this is what this kind of leads me to me and what he wants to try to see so this idea of post-truth could actually be a way that sociology we need more seriousness in our debate in society which also leads me to the art section and on the artist as well so that I've been focusing on making artworks around narratives kind of uh, critique these things Thank you. Um, anything else? Um, thank you very much for this conversation. I think it's been um, the most urgent problem in our time, which is how we can put ourselves in the face of an overweight of unreal realities and especially the need to climate change. Um, but I'm a philosopher, so I'm going to comment on the line as a political strategy because it's very long and distinguished history. <laughs> So it is about hope. It's about overcoming tribalism and um, forming community. Uh, and both these texts, you know, Kurtman argues that we need the light religion because we can't uh, confront our own mortality. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's all about overcoming tribalism and, and forming solidarity as a community. Um, but the rise of Trump had nothing to do with hope. It's like Michael Douglas says in the American president, the way we win elections is you put a bunch of middle-aged people together in a room and you tell them who is to blame for their rotting life. It's all about dissenting and hatred and division and destruction of communities in person community. So it might be useful to think about the difference between Trump neonics and modern people the time that you're doing things with regard to the aim of overcoming tribalism and forming the society. One around facts and alternative facts, and maybe it's better to think of alternative truths. One around libido and pleasure and enjoyment and what the investments are um, in these uh, processes. The third around Corbyn and trust and truth to power, critical realism, um, and different kinds of serious, uh, seriousness that have uh, been mobilized in the political landscape. And the last, thinking about hope differently in relation to Trump and whether we need to fine tune a little bit the way in which we're thinking about the. Um, the political mobilization of lies in the interests of either tr uh, hope or despair, or, or indeed victimization, the other. Who's going to, yeah, go on. I, so I think, uh, uh, thank you very much for your pertinent comments on enjoyment and, and the libido, because I think it's quite important to remember that we all want everything and now, or yesterday, but, but there is the reality principle that there is something that tests the, the availability of, of, of what we want in the object, and there's also later some 
forces uh, coming from uh, the other that tells us that maybe this is a bit too much or maybe you know there are things that we have to um, to submit to and I think that's what has not been said and I have not said is that there is I think sometimes and not probably in the case you, you mentioned when it is this defense against the unbearable but in the other side there is something tr sorry transgressive about, about this first truth that is going to allow me to do what I want when I want because I want it and because I can and that is an aspect that I find extremely worrying because you know what stops it where is the balance and it's, it's a it's a problem because precisely there is a problem of well there's no end to this enjoyment unless something a spanner puts it in the works and, and how does pleasure then relate to gratification in that because you think about when you think about the Kantian dynamic you think about this immediate gratification this never, never being deferred I mean it, there's a kind of greedy infantile pleasure that's at stake there isn't there Absolutely, but, but I think it's really important to understand the, 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 the concept of enjoyment as something which is beyond gratification or even pleasure. It could be unpleasure in some ways, but it's so strong in a way we are hooked, we are addicted to that, and that's what makes us uh, act. Because probably, if you see, uh, there's probably a lot of uh, enjoyment uh, uh, in the function of somebody who actually has an Im immense power. But there's also probably quite a lot of, of displeasure, but the, the whole package nonetheless is enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Marie? Well, in a way, it seems to me that your question and, the que and your question are, are very similar, that it's about different kinds of pleasure too, isn't it? That, that uh, what seems to be so shocking with, with, with Trump is it's like, <laughs> the, 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 there's everything that the liberal world has been critiquing, <coughs> we thought quite effectively for a long time, has suddenly, it, it can again, it's a question of power partly, but that you hear is suddenly discourses that were absolutely had become unacceptable. That particular pleasure now has a voice again. Uh, so that's why I think those two are, are, are very close. I also think that the question of pleasure is also the, re relevant to the difference between those of us who work on art and, and stuff and those, I, I couldn't bear, I mean, I know I could not bear to be a clinical psychoanalyst you know mm -hmm. I need the pleasure of art I, so I think it's also coming into play just even in the makeup of, of everything we're doing you know it's crucial anybody want to uh, did you want to say something yeah, about I the mean, political I, project I have, I have great hope for Jeremy Corbyn but um, uh, <coughs> I've just seen what, what happens to politicians that are getting to power mm -hmm. can a rebel really become something you can it's a massive clap what we talk about in psychoanalysis transference to a politician is enormous you know? mm -hmm. But can you actually manage that without you know, becoming simplistic and staying with complexity? It's very, very difficult. Trump did offer a lot of hope to people. I've got friends in America who are social workers, and they said in the Rust Belt where they work, people were saying he's one of us. And he's one of us, and Lionel's wife pointed out this to me, because he has an accent that sounds like he's from Queens. From Queens or, or Bronx or somewhere like that. That's what they said. Though. He has a slightly working class tinge to his accent. You know? And there's something about seeing this man, of course he doesn't given millions by his dad, but he may have come up from a working class poor background at some sort of level, you know, and look, he's made it, he's got great talent with his name, isn't that the side of it, the Freudian, but there you go, you know, <laughs> there's something so, uh, they, uh, he does offer hope, you know, he's not a very intelligent man, really, but his incredible instincts and whatever it is for power has got to where he is, and I think that does offer hope for people who feel hopeless, you know, as does strictly come down to saying the way this is, 
But do you think do you think people think he really will change things for them, or is it not just a, a destructive no, kind of? This yeah, this is power. Long, I imagine he won't last long because he's got mm. one bit of tobacco by uh, realizing somebody who hasn't got the substance. And I think it will turn out to be the lovely stuff of this. But you do think that they voted for him not out of hatred and all the things, that, but, but well, because... Well, like you talk about the Liberal, I mean, the thing about the Liberal today, the Cookins, what they just do, they say that the North London intellectual elite, who did elect other people, mm -hmm. you know, my dad in Ketchum saw these people in North London, you know, all talking about socialism, all that sort of stuff, but he didn't feel anything to do with it. They voted Brexit. I didn't speak to him for three weeks, but uh, <laughs> you know, he's changed his mind. Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, uh, I think he did. We, we did we neglected people too. Do you think I agree? Um, I, I know, oh, I just have a couple more comments or questions. Yeah, one, two, three. Um, so I was surprised by the way that people at the back can hear, but we can't. <laughs> 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 So I uh, started from um, thinking about post-Google's defense mechanism, which suddenly came up. And I wondered, in whose interest do we invest in post-Google as an investment mechanism? And who invests in it? The question of who benefits from that investment. Especially, especially if those lies are strategic, and if they are conscious, if they're liberal, because they're not conscious subject to lies, involuntary lies. Uh, and what is the psychological perspective of this group that consciously calls the world and share the origin of technology? Bear in mind that bear in mind the post truth and quantifying itself if it is being exposed to formal positions of authority. And uh, there seems to be, um, I like a little bit more on, on, the, uh, on the pathology of that. Thank you. Um. Saying that um, the French uh, empire building in Africa and all that sort of stuff was actually basically that was actually generating French culture into the outside world. It wasn't, a, it wasn't colonialism, it was actually putting the French culture. So you can rewrite history, mm -hmm. you know, very easily. If you're in power, you can rewrite history. Sorry. So, just very quickly, follow up on the, the question that was raised about the long history of lying in politics, which is a nonsense. Wonderful presentation brought out so so forcefully, but there have always been this always been this culture of lying, but much more sort of orchestrated at particular moments. And so, I'm, I, I guess I want to press a little on the changing nature of this social space, which is this uh, opened up so that, as you say, these subjective truths or fantasies. Um, can emerge and also condone 
So I suppose if you're a psychoanalyst, at least if, you, if you're a Freudian psychoanalyst, you, the, the heart of the matter is, the heart of the theoretical matter anyway, is that life produces, stimulates conflicts. Uh, conflicts from the word go around omnipotence, about being small and big, being able to do things, not being able to do things, the conflicts around the um, eatable situation, and then finally the, the depressive uh, position conflict. Now, the point about this set of insights is that experience is always ambivalent. And it's actually incredibly hard to get this across in the consulting room to patients who experience ambivalence because they go on and on and on making the assumption that you know being uh, angry with the analyst or you know not thinking the analyst's interpretation is wonderful that this is a problem they, they constantly believe want to have a conflict-free experience and there's lots of ways you, you can achieve that and I think this is very important in relation to politics and all the things we're talking about because the fact is that politics is compromise. Some groups, whether deliberately or inadvertently, because under uncertainty, even if you know, God was in charge, you'd have serious problems getting it all, all right. Some groups gain, some groups lose, things don't go according to plan. And so, the whole issue of adapting to reality and moving from, if you like, adolescent views of, of reality to later view is that it has to do with accepting these conflicts whilst at the same time still what you might call hope or trying to do, do things differently and, and so on. So, I mean, the problem with the left is that at the moment, it seems to me, they've lost touch of a realistic project for how things are going to be better. If we go to rhetoric about it, it's, it may work for a bit. I've seen Harold Wilson, I've seen Tony Blair in my life. We were all very hopeful. Uh, and now we have Jeremy Corbyn. So it would all depend on whether or not this you can bring together the enthusiasm to actually address things and actually 
to help people see what you're addressing. Now, the Trump and all that type of phenomena, I think we have to accept, arises from a blind spot. And that is that everyone ignored the people who were the losers in the system, who were a lot of people. And there's a big difference between losers, the losers in this room, who you know might, for example, people who have difficulty buying houses in London because of the nightmare property situation we've created, and the kind of losers that I think we're talking about in the Rust Belt uh, of the US and so on. And it has a lot to do with education. So I don't know whether any of you have seen or know about, there's a new film coming out, which I can't remember the title, but it's about the two American Olympic skaters. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? So, Sorry? I, Tanya. So, Tanya's, yeah, okay. So this is about the two American Olympic skaters based on a real story in which one is kind of young, or they're both young, but is, is an American princess, privileged, beautiful. Sorry? Okay, so I, okay, so do you want to tell the story? But anyway, briefly, what happened is the underprivileged, the particularly underprivileged one in the way it was represented, or at least her husband, broke the leg of the other one. And the film, according to Gillian Tett, if you read her review in the Financial Times about 10 days ago, is a fantastic evocation. Mm. Or it sounds really would be hard to watch, uh, of the antagonism of one whole group of set of people in the US to people who are educated. Now this, I don't think it's simple. I don't think we can call this hatred. Hatred's certainly there. But it's actually a deep problem of being left behind and of not being recognized that you were left behind. And that's why I think, I would say, that people thought, great, we've won at last. Because they, they had, in a sense, won something, if only for the next five minutes. Well, I don't want the conversation to end on the analysis of the domestic <laughs> situation in America, because that takes us into, I mean, it's fascinating, and we're all riveted by it, and we're all staring like rabbits into the headlights all the time in relation to this, which is its own kind of pleasures and pathologies, as we know. Um, so, so I wondered if there's just just to round up before we, we have a have a drink, if there's something that anybody might want to say uh, a little bit more abstractly, perhaps about what psychoanalysis has to teach us about understanding um, the the political li landscape that we are inhabiting and the psychic investments in it. Any anything more that anybody wanted to say about that, or we can leave it as a kind of open um, possibility. Talking about going out to the Trump people and people like that. Uh, my experience of being uh, doing the political mind seminars, and we did a, a, a radio, very amateur radio program on resonance 104.4, uh, which is a radio, radio station in London. And, uh, and it was listened to by all sorts of people who don't know what psychoanalysis is. And they actually really understood the language we were using, which was you know, basically simple and real. You know. And people kept on saying things like, why didn't we know this existed before? And I think it's because people like us, intellectual people like us, which are art and creativity and psychoanalysts especially, have got stuck in our institutions and don't actually go out, you know. And perhaps 
promulgate some of these thinkings and ideas. So um, there's been an intellectual vacuum to some extent, I think, because people were hungry for knowledge, actually. Because it's not just hungry for food, which I think is very important, obviously, but they're hungry for mental food, too. And I think um, something about not just talking to the converted, but talking to the other people somehow or other, you know, going on tether, whatever we do, you know, something needs to be Simple, but very Okay, well, I, I think um, left for me to thank you all so much for really incredibly rich uh, presentations and wonderfully stimulating conversation. And thank you to you all for coming, and please do join us for a glass of wine. It's like